On this episode of In Biolog, our guest is Dr. Justin Frick, and we're talking home health care. I'm your host, Parker Condit, CEO of Motobio. Justin is a doctor of physical therapy and works as the regional vice president for HealthPro Heritage at Home for the Virginia, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York City, and Connecticut markets. This was a fun conversation for me because so much of it was driven by pure curiosity since home healthcare is a part of the healthcare industry that I have very little experience with. Justin does a great job of explaining what exactly home healthcare is, where it fits into the care continuum, and the basic demographics of people who are receiving home healthcare. He also goes through a few real-world examples to better outline the patient journey and have a better understanding of your rights as a patient. We also talk about what the next 10 years looks like in the home healthcare sector, as well as the healthcare industry as a whole, which includes a shift to more proactive care, changing financial incentives, and how artificial intelligence will fit into the industry. I'm very thankful for Justin for coming onto the podcast and taking the time to share his knowledge with us. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Justin Frick. Justin, uh, it's great to have you here. I think it's easiest to just start off by, let's just get a definition of home healthcare because those three words, uh, independently, very small words, everyone knows them, but combined, I think there's a lot of mystery and misunderstanding around what exactly home healthcare is. So I think it'd be a great place to start. Yeah. And I think uh, that's common for patients or potential clients to to not understand it as well because there's there's two segments to it right there's skilled care which involves nursing therapy and uh other ancillary services but then there's also uh the personal care side of things but at a higher level home health is post-acute care someone's discharged from a facility they come home it helps them transition out of that facility remain out of a hospital um it includes hospital at home, chronic condition management, prevention and wellness, post-surgical type of care. So really anybody who has had any kind of event that has resulted in a hospitalization or a placement into a facility, uh, they can transition into home care. And within that home health care, it's you know up to the doctor to decide if, uh, what's most appropriate, whether it's nursing and therapies like physical occupational speech therapy, or is it just nursing? Is it just therapy? And then from there, the clinicians in the home can also determine if there has to be other services in and communicate that with the physician to get the appropriate services in the home. Yeah. All right. So that's that's a great place to start. Um, and I think that last thing that you were touching on is really important. The fact that like there's somebody there consistently and they can sort of iterate on what the process is going to be instead of just saying like, here's sort of your discharge schedule and here's what we expect you to do. It's like that might be the right plan initially, but things change, obviously. Uh, we're very volatile humans and things need to be adapted. So I think one of the big benefits probably that we're going to end up discussing is sort of the the iterative and faster process of being able to make changes post-discharge. Yeah, yeah. When And when patients are home, it's set up with uh, 30-day payment periods within a 60-day, what they call episode of care. But there's freedom in there to recertify an additional 60 days, add or remove certain services. And so really, it's it drives that uh, clinician in the home uh, using their clinical judgment to communicate that back to the referring physician on what patient needs at that time. Great. Yeah. So I... I to try to creating a framework within the healthcare industry is really helpful, at least for me as somebody who hasn't worked in the healthcare forever. 
Um, so like kind of starting over here, I tend to think of like, uh, prevention and then kind of moving to your primary care and then specialty care. And then you can have like outpatient surgery and then you can have your hospital setting. And then sort of beyond that, we're getting into the home health care and that can sort of like circle back to sort of the primary as well. Yeah. In time. So I just kind of, I just kind of wanted to give sort of like how, how I visualize a spectrum of, of care along this massive industry. Yeah. And that's pretty accurate what you're saying. There is a tie in for prevention and wellness in home care. However, um, I'd say it's, it's often underutilized and it doesn't have to necessarily be just a general referral to help, you know, manage a disease and prevent an exacerbation. It could be, you know, somebody comes home from the hospital with a new diagnosis, but although it's more heavily on the nursing end, they might have a therapist in for fall prevention and education on how exercise, et cetera, can help manage their disease process. So part of what we'll probably get into later on is kind of my, my sticking point with how prevention really needs to be, you know, more in the forefront than it is now, even on the post-acute end. Yeah. It's interesting that you I'd, I'd never really thought of prevention. Like when we, I kind of sent over an initial uh, topic list with you and I had put prevention on there. I'm like, is that even possible? Cause I kind of knew it was on like the post hospital side of that spectrum that I was talking about. I was like, is there even a place for, for prevention? But I'm, I'm glad to hear that there is, but that's one of those yeah. things that's sort of like required. It, it's going to be a necessary change sort of across the industry. If anything's anything meaningful is going to happen from a financial perspective. Yeah. And you know, uh, much cheaper, right? On the prevention end than, you know, after the problem happens, right? And so that's, everybody knows that, but it's, it's still underutilized. Uh, I've, you know, and some of the payment model changes and things like that have kind of uh, changed the level of prevention we can provide. For example, you know, back before 2020 in a previous payment model, therapy visits actually helped drive reimbursement. And so there were programs, one of which I'm certified in for Parkinson's disease, where it was a 16 visit program. Physicians, neurologists used to refer for, you know, preventing the decline, right, of, mm -hmm. uh, or the regression associated with Parkinson's. And now with some of those payment re uh, reform and whatnot, the 16 visits really isn't going to be covered, so to speak. And so now, our Parkinson's patients are coming in and it's okay. They've already had the fall. They've already had the injury. They've already regressed. Now we have to get them back to baseline. And so there's still prevention within that because we're teaching them how to prevent a future fall, a future injury. But at the same time, we've kind of been stripped away from the other end where we used to get those referrals prior to the exacerbation. Now it's trending more towards waiting till after. Okay. Interesting. Um, so I'm kind of reading between the lines. Were you basically saying that it was more of a fee-for-service model prior to 2020? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So basically, it was certain thresholds of therapy visits equated to a certain dollar amount or before a particular diagnosis. And now the payment model is more of taking in where they're referred from, how early or late their episode in home health is what their main diagnosis is, comorbidities, and then functional status. It creates, uh, through an algorithm, a, a number that is how much that home health episode is going to be reimbursed for. And then from there, the home health company, the clinicians have to utilize appropriately so business can keep the doors open, but patient gets the care they need. 
Yeah. All right. I, I think we're going to have to dive into it now a little bit because I think everyone in this country can appreciate that uh, something you're going to bring up is that healthcare is a, is a business in this country. Um, but I, I can appreciate what you were saying in that in the previous fee for service model and fee for service is exactly what it sounds like. It's like if you perform X service, you're going to get this particular reimbursement. Or if you do it X number of times, you're going to get that reimbursement times X, right? So it, it's a pretty straightforward way of billing. The problem is um, historically fee-for-service billing has been for uh, services, procedures, and like diagnosable disease states. Basically, there has to be something wrong before the provider can get paid. And this is something that now that I've gotten into the healthcare industry and I speak to a lot of people who are not in the industry, they just they say things like, why don't we just focus on prevention? And it's a good point, but you have to understand the financial incentives behind it. And the point that you're alluding to is that historically, everything has been fee-for-service and there's been a variety of different payment models. And there is a shift from fee-for-service to value-based care, which is um, focusing more on outcomes and providers getting paid for better outcomes, which is which is a good driving force for um, for prevention. But I think people do need to appreciate the fact that until we get there and during this transitional period, you have to have an appreciation for the fact that these companies and these providers do still, it is still a business for them. Like how much free work do you want to do every day? Um, Not a ton, I would assume. So I I wanted to bring that up now just so people can have an understanding of what you were saying when you're saying, oh, you would get a lot of referrals because it was, it sounded like a good reimbursement. They were like, they knew if they referred out, they would get reimbursed a certain amount. You guys would get paid pretty consistently for that Parkinson's program, which sounded like a good program. It's excellent. Yeah. And so, and the way it shifts now is they fall into that same algorithm, right? With all of our other patients and the reimbursement, if you were to take what a clinician is worth, right? Per visit Mm -hmm. and add that up and compare it to what you're being reimbursed you're really not going to get that 16 visits. And so home health companies, I've always alluded to it as almost like a reverse managed care. They're not telling you how many visits, they're telling you how much money, and then you have to decide how many visits. So you're managing the care for the insurance, right? And then I've never thought of it that way. (laughs) Getting that out to the patient, right? So we're obviously not trying to tell our patients all the time, all the dollar signs and all, but we're trying to explain like, yeah, maybe five years ago when you had this surgery, you got nine therapy visits. And nowadays with the way things are reimbursed, you're going to be two less weeks and four less visits, and you're going to be pushed right to outpatient. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, it's a, been reimbursed. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So it is important to always keep in mind, like, what are the financial incentives in this? And I think one of the things that seems to be lacking in the industry, because it is such a big machine and it has to be, it's the biggest industry in the country is it there feels to be like a lack of empathy like it feels like a very empty empty industry uh because there are so many ways to make money so a lot of industry or a lot of companies have gotten into it and there's a great way to extract money from the industry um it's a very lucrative lucrative industry so there seems to be a lack of empathy from sort of the insurance and like provider side to the patients but i always uh there's a complete lack of empathy for patients understanding like how providers can be squeezed. And a lot of times they're just, 
they're operating in this financial model that they can't control. Right. And a lot of times, right, if if you or I were to have something happen to us or a loved one and we knew nothing about the system, so to speak, we don't care, right? We want mom, dad, ourselves to get better. Mm-hmm. And so they're not coming in with any knowledge base of what these changes are. So you have that from that end, the patient not knowing, then you have, you know, the staffing shortage as it is, right? Clinicians being asked to do more with less in a value-based model and coming into these homes, trying to hit productivity measures, things like that. And they lose that empathy, right? Because they, yes, they have to take care of you. They have to take care of uh, your condition, communicate with the staff on your case, but they've got a patient at home waiting, you know, that's maybe a 20 minute drive from there. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I would say overall, let me, you know, go back a bit and say that, you know, part of as a PT myself, right? We still have that positive outlook on things with home health care, but just kind of painting the picture of some of the hurdles and things that we have to go over. And I think if the patient has a better understanding, if the population has a better understanding of how these things work, I think there would be a shared empathy for each other and a little more onus on the patient to latch on to what that therapist is saying and or nurse and do the work that they need to do between the visits and the therapist to take on that that role as kind of that not just the 45 minute to an hour session a week with the patient but really that care manager and making sure that that patient can get to the following week you know and doing all the things they need to do kind of like a mentor to the patient as more than just the you know one-on-one healer in that 45 minute yeah for sure i'm sure we're going to keep circling back to this um but i just kind of want to keep sort of building out the the model or like the view of home health so like what what are the common demographics of people that you're seeing in this group Mm -hmm. so uh geriatric population for sure just paint a broad picture on age um but it's not limited to that population generally what qualifies somebody from for home care would be a normal inability to leave the home um which could be due to their condition uh due to a prior injury maybe it's just due to their limited access to care in their locale right um Mm -hmm. so some of the you know i'd hate to say that we just treat it all but we kind of do but to kind of summarize it a little bit post-surgical patients general disease management maybe they're not controlling their medications well they're not managing it well so to speak um Perhaps they have a new disease and they were hospitalized for it. And now they're home trying to figure out how they're going to just get home and take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have patients who are high risk for for re-hospitalizations or a hospitalization. And so that can be a referral that doesn't have to necessarily come from a hospital. It can come from a community primary care doctor. Like, hey, my patient's at risk. They can't control their disease. Come into the home and help them. and then just patients who are high risk for falls, injuries, and things like that in there. Yeah. So sort of within that list, you touched on a few things. Um, and this is going to be another term that is, it's very common right now. And it it is one of the biggest drivers. It's one of the biggest questions in the industry, which is social determinants of health. Um, and you kind of mentioned two of those things, which were um, individuals who are like, they don't have necessarily access or ability to get safely get to their medical treatment and then other people who just they don't have access in their area so those two things if people are listening and unaware of what social determinants of health are it's the things that you're not 
doing. It doesn't have to like directly. It's not what you're eating. It's not your lifestyle factors. It's not your physical health. It's like what in your environment is contributing to the overall health outcomes. And depending on the research you're looking at and depending on if you're looking at individual or like population data, um, social determinants of health can contribute anywhere from like 50 to 60% of outcomes. Um, so it's not an insignificant thing. And there are not a lot of good answers to that question right now, because like, how do you, cause it, it gets into the whole idea of community management. Like how do you create safe spaces? Can you create green spaces? How do you get, how do you get these medical facilities into low income areas where you know, there's not a big incentive to do so without the, you know, financial carrot from the government or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, so th it's very encouraging to hear that home care, as you can tell, is probably a very viable solution to at least address some of those things of like, well, if you don't have the access in your area, if you don't feel safe leaving your home to go get access, home health is obviously one of those very, very pragmatic solutions, at least right now. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, you know, tying it back to that financial aspect and, and uh, providers trying to get into certain spaces, uh, insurances are always looking for the best care at the lowest price. Right. And in, in home care, there's no overhead. They're not giving patients meals. They're not paying, you know, it's the patient's electric bill. It's like all those little things out mm -hmm. of cost for a, an insurance. Right. And so, um, plus the fact that home health is mobile, right? We're going to your home. You don't have to go anywhere. So it, it really opens up a lot of avenues for, uh, for patients. So long as there's clinicians that are in that maybe hard to reach area as well, which could also be another side of it, but, um, more often than not, there's avenues to provide that care. Yeah. And you touched on it earlier, just another industry-wide issue, which is staffing. Yep. Yep. There's I mean, just not enough people to go around right now. Yeah. Yeah. Dealing with it every day. And, you know, it's a healthcare problem. It's a nationwide problem in a lot of industries, but, uh, you know, staffing has become an issue. And one of the things I'll talk about specific to home care is when you're discharged from a hospital, the rule is that within 48 hours of the referral that a clinician is in your home for home care, if it's ordered. So trying to navigate that on top of the influx of patients because everybody's wanting to have care in their home and rightfully so mm -hmm. there's certain uh limitations to the ability to get out there timely there are avenues where if the doctor sees that it's not as high of a risk they can order a later date right to come but you know the first couple of days home from the hospital is their highest risk to go back and so the purpose of us is to keep you out of the hospital and home care and if we're not getting out there timely, we're putting you at risk. So um, I will say that home health companies have gotten innovative and uh, have been able to get their timeliness still at or above 90% in most instances that I, that I have seen. That's really impressive. I, how do you, how do you manage like the scheduling and like the logistics of that? You're almost like a logistics company at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the way my company works, it is, uh, they actually use Google maps and they will put, you know, the radius of that, of a particular clinician and to keep it short and simple referral comes in, they type the address in, it drops a pin. They click on that therapist tells them how many visits they have that week. And if there's multiple therapists in that area or somebody adjacent to that area, then it becomes a little bit of a shuffle. And I've had, schedulers 
on my team come from all different, you know, logistics type backgrounds. And yeah. they seem to think that the home health side of things is the most difficult, but uh, we've been using technology, things like that to help right size it um, and, and get the therapists and nurses out in the patient's home. Yeah. Gosh, you would think there's like, there's gotta be some sort of like optimization algorithm out there. It's like that. I'm sure like what Amazon is using for their delivery drivers and their massive fleet of infrastructure and logistics. Mm -hmm. There is, there is some technology out there. Um, I think it's a little bit in its infancy for home care because of just the regulations of timeliness of initiating care Mm -hmm. and that, you know, getting out to a orthopedic surgery case might have to be prioritized over another case just on a regulatory timing type thing. And so as they build that out, I think we'll see more of almost like an Uber kind of uh, thing where you can say, hey, there's a patient here and it pings up to a therapist and they can say, I'll take that case and hop out. So um, some of those things are in the works though, but I haven't seen it super, you know, built out and successful yet. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's a, it's all new stuff, but you have to imagine like in, yeah, it, somewhere in the near future, like that's going to become standard. You're going to look back and be like, I can't believe we kind of did this manually <laughs> and it somehow yeah. sort of worked. That's another thing with the healthcare industry. It's like, we could spend the next hour talking about all the things that are wrong. And like, even then at the end of the conversation, we'd be like, it still kind of works. It does. It which has- is like miraculous. And we we're in the beginning and, and I was talking about, you know, the financial piece and all of that in my head, I'm like, man, I'm really painting a poor picture of the healthcare system here. But I know that we have great outcomes with our patients and things are actually quite good. And there's people Mm -hmm. who are, you know, being paid appropriately for their work and doing good work on our patients. So it's very successful. I just think, you know, a couple tweaks here and there might be, might be a good solution. Well, yeah, and that's that's what it's going to be, right? It's going to be like little tweaks in like every little facet of the industry, because um, yeah. like there, you can't point at one thing and be like, "That's the problem." It's too big, and there just needs to be like a lot of like quick iterative tweaks in every aspect of it. Yeah, unless there's going to be some major overall like universal care, but I I just don't see that happening. So I don't either. And and what what kind of I guess you know for some background for those who don't know much about the home health care you might even see it year to year if you're a, a frequent flyer as we call certain patients right you might say hey last year when i had home care it was a little different well every october and ironically enough tends to be right around halloween they launch what's called the final rule like what's going to be the uh the rules for next year right what changes are there going to be and so the way i describe it is medicare always just moves the needle a little bit and then home health agencies and companies have to try to adapt over the next two or month leading up to the new year, one to two months. Then they perform for that year. Medicare assesses the behavior and moves the needle again. And so it is little tweaks here and there over time. So yeah, some some big overhaul, I, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, definitely not. Um this is something as I was kind of looking through your notes earlier, is home healthcare like a new phenomenon? Is it like a new treatment style or I'm not even sure how to describe it, modality? I know what you're saying. No, it's been around. Uh, it's just hasn't been recently, you know, or up until recently, it really hasn't been out in the forefront. Like uh, even when I was in PT school, and this is 2011 to 2014, you know, there was very 
few courses that had a focus in home health. Like, but it's been around. I mean, and it's dating back to, you know, the days when physicians would come to your home all the time. And, and you know, that was a while back. And, yeah. and now we're looking at, you know, there was a period of time where everybody went for their care or they perhaps just didn't get it. But home health was always there. I just think people just didn't know it was there. Yeah. Do you have an idea of like when the growth really happened? Like obviously the pandemic um, sort of uh, forced it into the forefront, but was there any momentum like leading up to it before then? Had there been like a change in reimbursements that were incentivizing that? Um, I think as hospitals and physicians started to partner up and track metrics, you know, we'll say from 2000 on, which of course, you know, that as early as 2000 was way before I was thinking of what I wanted to do with my life. But yeah. There, there was a lot of changes where, you know, there was not a fully shared risk, but there was a little more, you know, pressure. Yep. Not just refer downstream and forget about the patient. Um, and when that happens, then this transition into home care started, then the reimbursement models that had more or less incentivized home care, you know, that was through the mid, you know, I would say from 2000 up until even, pa you know, pandemic time, uh, the payment model changed in 2020 at the same time the pandemic hit. And that really just accelerated everything from just delivery of home care to looking at different, different innovations with technology and whatnot, telehealth, things like that. So. Yep. I would say even if there was progress made in the last 50 years, it was really the last three that have just accelerated this like crazy. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, yeah. And, and just for, to give people an example of kind of what we were saying, you've mentioned like rehospitalization a few times and like, why would hospitals be incentivized to work with a home health care agency? Um, for certain instances, there's a lots of different rules and sort of like defined outcomes for these things. But if a hospital uh, discharges a patient and that patient within X number of days for this certain procedure gets re-hospitalized, uh, they're either going to not get paid for that re-hospitalization or it's severely discounted or they're going to get penalized for their original hospitalization too. So there's a huge financial incentive for them to actually take care of the patients once they're outside the door as well. Right. I just wanted to give that example because uh, not everyone lives in this bizarre healthcare universe that we operate in. Uh, all right. Could we just go to your background a bit? Just kind of yeah. understanding like uh, where you went to college, how you kind of got into this and this, if this is something that was sort of on your radar for a long time. Yeah, uh, it was. I always had it, I would say, through high school. Uh, a background in, uh, you know, exercise physiology was always there. I did start off going to school for uh biology was looking at more marine biology things like that uh research type things with animals and then after tearing my meniscus playing soccer for the university of scranton i had surgery had pt and was i was like wow i'm back on the field quicker than i ever imagined hmm. and it said you know that's exactly what i want to do so uh went through the whole program uh at the university of scranton undergraduate and then the doctorate program and then from there, like most clinicians, got right into an outpatient setting uh, and having the background in sports athletics, that's where I thought I would be going. Um, but, you know, 
during the outpatient time, I, I always had it in the back of my head to get into home healthcare, really stemming from when I was on a service trip, we did a home visit uh, for somebody actually in Guatemala, and it was my first exposure to it, loved it, stayed in the back of my brain. Over time, that first year of my career, I was trying to come to terms with what I really wanted to do as a PT. And boom, uh, went on a couple of home health visits where I was living at the time in Virginia and just said, yeah, this is exactly what I want to do. So I went from wanting to be the next PT for the Jets to now taking care of uh, you know, a whole different population. But I find it to be so rewarding. Uh, it's one-on-one -on -one care with the patient. You're in their home, so there's no simulating anything. Uh, there's a whole different level of caring that you need in the home, and I just gravitated to it. So that's how I got into the whole health space. Yeah, it's it's probably important to note that in outpatient settings, you're generally managing a few clients at the same time, right? Kind of yeah, so get them started. Here's your exercise. All right, here's your PT assistant over here. They're going to keep an eye on you. I'll keep an eye on you. Yep. Yep. And where I was at, we actually uh, didn't have PT assistants at my outpatient clinic. So we were providing uh, the treatment sessions as well. But outside right. of evaluation, you were always coming in at the same time as another patient. And so it, it is, you know, a couple patients at a time. So where I'm, I'm not passing you on to a PT assistant under my supervision, I was supervising two patients at the same time, bouncing back and forth, which, yeah. you know, is a big struggle for a lot of uh, therapists who get into outpatient care. Yeah. And like you said, like out of PT school, that's where a lot of PTs start. So like to, for that to be your first experience, it's, is there a lot of burnout in the industry? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and you know, every, every month we go over, you know, uh, resignations, reasons I send out, you know, exit survey or communicating with the staff. So even within, uh, therapists that work, you know, within my network, yep. there is burnout, um, in certain companies, you know, whether they change their productivity standards or they change how they want care delivered, there's just a lot of downward pressure on clinicians, right? You know, less visits, maximize your outcomes, have to hit this productivity, financial components, things like that. Then you tie in the pandemic, right? Where you have these home visits, people were getting, you know, laid off from outpatient clinics because, you know, there was just not open clinics and things like that. So uh, I think we've all kind of come out of that pandemic with with a little bit of you know, burnt energy there. And I'm yeah, starting to see a transition, you know, back to, you know, that career satisfaction and things like that. But, you know, honestly, yeah, there, there is high burnout, uh, especially in those settings where you're, you're asked to do multiple patients at the same time. Yeah. I can imagine it's just like the, the billing requirements are probably quite burdensome in those settings. Did you ever end up working with professional athletes? Never did. Nope. I, I always wanted to, uh, but I would say, and I can't share uh, specifics, but I would say that there was a former NFL player who I worked with in their home. They were, at that time, they were in their 70s, so they were <laughs> at the peak of their career. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you, you're now on the management side, but I know you still work with patients. Um, how'd you kind of make that transition or what, I guess, what drove you to 
make the transition from kind of being hands-on in the field every day to more seeing what you could influence from the, the management side? Yeah, it all it all started with when I got into home care, finally supervising PT assistants, right? Makes sense in home care, especially with geographical. It's easier to have a PT bounce county to county and eval and then pass to the local PT assistants who will have a higher volume of cases in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, what a lot of home health agencies may or may not have, I would say more times than not, they don't is a therapy representation in their office from a management perspective. And at my first home health job, um, I was staff PT and I just noticed a lot of clinicians were coming to me with questions or, you know, things they wanted to see that could help improve delivery of care and even identifying trends with our patients just being talked about in our, you know, case conferences. I'm like, man, if we just had a little bit more input from the therapy end, I really think we can make some good change here. And I'm, you know, grateful for the CEO of that company said, you know, if you if you feel that there needs to be representation, draw it up for me. Tell me how that position would look. And, you know, long story short, he stamped his approval on it. And that's how the management kicked off. And so it was more of a, you know, hearing from clinicians that either I was directly supervising or just within my team who I, I just found this avenue that I can touch more patients from a management end than I can one on one direct care. So now, if you add up all the patients in all the markets I manage, it pushes 2,500 patients. And where I might do, you know, uh, anywhere from three to five visits in a week, sure. managing the care for over 2,500 people, which is really rewarding for me. Yeah, shit, I can imagine. Um, when you say therapy, do you mean like physical therapy, occupational therapy? Is it sort of like a, an umbrella term? For yeah. No, yeah. And sorry about that. I should have clarified physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. Okay. Speech as well. Gotcha. Yeah. And is it, are there always those three in like every home health facility or office? For the most part, yes. No. Um, reason being, right? Uh, if a position, is referring a case you can't accept the case if you don't have the service right you can't say oh we'll assess it they need that and then let you know you have to have the service up front and so a lot of home health companies will the difficulty with the speech therapy component is that it's the least amount of home health referrals but one of the most valuable parts of care and as a pt myself i'm comfortable saying that um the problem is though is that it's tough to maintain you know, full-time kind of work for a speech therapist. So we often see speech therapy kind of as a per diem type role within different home care companies. Yep. Um, and then they work for a few companies, get their referrals in their area. So, um, but not every case gets every discipline. Um, and actually they can utilize not only you know, the evaluations from the ordered clinicians to determine if others are needed, but also they can case converse and determine, all right, well, in this case, it's really more occupational therapy driven. So we can remove PT from this case. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Where do you see yourself going kind of in the future for your career? Yeah, I, um, I've had a pretty quick trajectory up into this, uh, time in a regional president role. It helps when you can start off by making your own role. 
Yeah, right, right. right. It's a good way to do it, though. Yeah, and if Johnny's out there listening, uh, thank you. <laughs> you know who you are. Um, but yeah, you know, I see myself going down the road of you know climbing up to uh, executive level at a home health company. A little background on the company I work for now. It's actually a therapy group that works with home health agencies to provide their therapy services. So my my management is specifically with therapy at this level, mm-hmm. but it does tie in different consulting type services and uh, you know general agency management type services. So I've got a background in a lot of different aspects of it. I would love to see that climb into an executive level, whether it's with one home health agency or uh, with an, with a therapy group, so to speak. But, um, yeah, I don't see it. I don't see this being my, my end game. And if, uh, you get down the road and I see the opportunity starting my own home health company, you know, could be something or, you know, just a concierge type therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always like hypotheticals. So like, if you started your own company, like, what would you be able to do differently? Cause like, that's the benefit, right? You get the flexibility of kind of getting to do things that you may not be able to do in your current capacity. So like in an ideal scenario, if you were kind of running your own, maybe staffing yeah. agency for, for these home health companies, what would you want to be doing differently? I actually don't know if I'd get into this, the staffing model, like I'm doing with my current company. I think I would get more into a, a service that can provide some of the things that we just can't under traditional Medicare home health model, right? Uh, that Parkinson's uh, program. I mean, I miss it dearly. I can't do it. You know, that visit frequency. Um, I think I would get into almost even like a private pay type business uh, oh. where, you know, of course, patients who have insurances, there's different, you know, hurdles to jump there. But uh, where you can come to me and you don't have to have a, an injury. You don't have to have a hospitalization. You could say, Hey, I just want to learn about X, Y, and Z and what I can do through a physical therapist to prevent that from happening or from getting worse, so to speak, be it Parkinson's or any other diagnosis. And I can come to your home and do that as frequently or as infrequently as you like, and just keep you on the right pace, almost like a uh, a coach and the PT at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. patients. Um, and that'll help tap into the preventative space a little bit too. I think getting, you know, and it's kind of my, my gripe a little bit is that we do need the population to kind of buy in, right. To not just waiting to fix the problem, but to prevent the problem from happening. And a lot of things get normalized, right. Uh, and some of those things that are happening in our country, in the world today, whether it's health related things like that are leading to chronic disease and, and other, you know, negative life impacts. So, um, getting on that preventative end with, you know, a population that wants to get better, that wants to prevent things from happening. I think our generation starting to really push that along and maybe when we're older, we'll be a little different, who knows, but, uh, you know, getting into that space would be great. Yeah. I think the point you mentioned about kind of the combination of coaching is really important. Um, I I think a lot of times in the healthcare space, there's this, uh, 
there's a lack of appreciation for how how overwhelming that situation can be as a patient. And when somebody just rattles off, like, I need you to do these six things, um, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant for them. Um, yeah. So being able to understand the the coaching aspect and kind of really, like really building that relationship, because with a relationship, you're going to get the buy-in and that's where you're really going to get the behavioral change to actually drive different habits, healthier behaviors, things like that. Um, so yeah, that's a very interesting model you're proposing. And let's think about it in relation to home care too, right? I would be more apt if somebody is showing me within my home what I can do versus, you know, seeking out going somewhere to learn all of that, right? I think there's a, you know, if you were to group people who maybe are, you know, in the geriatric population and tell them, hey, here's something you've never done before, right? And you're going to have to start doing it. Uh, but you're going to have to go drive to this office to get it. I think they'd be less apt to buy in and saying, hey, we're going to come to your home and show you how you can just do it within your home. And mm-hmm. uh, so I always, you know, sounds simple on paper that, you know, we should just drive all the care to the home, but there's, there is appropriateness for different settings. I just obviously am the home health advocate here. Yeah, no, there's, there's definitely a big push towards it. I was down at a conference earlier this year and, um, one of the things I wanted to bring up in relation to being in the home and one of the benefits of that, kind of tying back into the social determinants of health, one of the big things is like food insecurity mm-hmm. and understanding kind of how a person actually lives. And normally you're just getting like a sort of a, a history from someone like, oh, like, how's your diet? Uh, how often do you drink? Things like that. Like that on a clipboard is very different than being in somebody's home and like you can see their cupboards. Like, is, are there alcohol bottles everywhere? And it's like being able to see those things is massively transformative. It was one of the things that kind of surprised me at this conference was it was a healthcare conference, um, but the CEO of Instacart was there because mm. she's she's working with a lot of like Medicare Advantage companies. Um, yeah. Yeah, so a lot on the value-based care side of things because they're realizing that delivering healthy food uh, to certain patients is cheaper to just pay for their food, get it to them, is cheaper than dealing with the consequences down the road. It's 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 amazing that they're doing that because I can tell you there have been numerous times you go into a home, let's just use diabetes for the example, and they just had a huge exacerbation diabetic event, their home. The nurse is preaching the medications and, you know, healthy living. The therapist is preaching exercise. But as you walk in the door, they're eating, you know, Oreos or something very unhealthy mm-hmm. soda while they take in all this info you're giving them. And so I, I think some of it, though, might not be on the patient. It could be access. It could be knowledge. You know, it could be financially driven where they can't afford maybe the healthier foods. And so... Sure. You know, of course, we have to provide the education, but then how do they get it, right? And so, getting that into their home, Instacart, doing that would be huge. I think you know that 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 would get, you know, surpasses even like the Meals on Wheels kind of thing, right? Where they might not get to have a menu of what they want; they're getting what's being delivered to their home. But Instacart, they can pick. Okay, my nurse said this and this. My dietitian said this and this. I have to avoid this, so I'm not going to put that on the list. That'd be great. Yeah, it's a it's very interesting to see that, and just it kind of opens your eyes to be like, what other like what other interesting technology partnerships are available that you might not think are going to be obvious? Um, Instacart was one that really opened my eyes. Even though like you start talking about it, you're like, yep, that actually that totally makes sense. 
Absolutely. It, it'll be interesting to see. And I don't know if they talked about it, like how they could even get in cahoots with the insurances, right? And how they'll get maybe some sort of financial gain from it to where they, they're going to want to do it and do it more. I'm sure there is. Like there, there's so many tax rebates. Uh, like you have to be like an actuary and a tax, like right. a tax professional to truly understand a lot of these incentives. Like I see these companies and like they're, they're very successful and they're like, we treat the sickest and the poorest and they're doing really, I'm like, how are you doing it? But there's like, it's because the government's incentivizing, like we need to get this population taken care of okay. in a very specific way. And they'd know how to read, read those regulations. Like yeah. we're going to build a company around this regulation. Mm -hmm. Do you have any examples of like case studies? of sort of like the home health setting, just kind of understanding like how somebody like leaves a hospital and w what their care path looks like. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, you're wanting it like from exacerbation through hospitalization straight to home care and then what pursues after that. Yeah. I mean, even just like from hospital to like what happens after discharge. Okay. Got it. So, um, what, when a patient's, leading up to discharge they have to get signed off by you know the nurse the therapist the doctor the discharge planner um is the one who's going to be quote unquote placing the patient into home care but what patients often miss is that they have the right to choose their home health provider uh but they might not know right and so i wouldn't have known yeah right and so it's funny because when we initiate home health services and we actually tell the patient you know you Part of your rights is you have the right to choose your provider, but by signing this form, you're choosing us. <laughs> um, so they're not, you know, the, the hospitals are required to provide a patient a list. Here is our preferred providers and also going to have to start also showing them some outcomes, which will be beneficial, right? Because, you know, if you see that Justin's home health company is you know, three and a half stars out of five, but Parker's home health agency is four stars. Well, I'm naturally going to think to pick Parker's, right? And then if a family member wants to get granular, they can go ahead and look at, you know, well, specific to what outcomes sure. my loved one needs. So the discharge planner provides that information to the patient, but more times than not, and especially exacerbated during the pandemic and staffing shortage, there's also boards where the hospital will say, hey, we have this patient and all the home care providers can log in and pluck the patients off if they have services that are appropriate. Mm -hmm. And then they'll tell the patient, you're going to be placed with this whole health agency. From there, uh, the patient is obviously sent home. Um, and I should go back and say this could be a discharge from a hospital or like a skilled nursing facility. Sure. Whatever discharge is leading them to home. There is that window of time that is a huge risk where the patient is leaving the hospital and coming home with absolutely no guidance besides hoping that amongst this whole life-changing event, they remember everything they were taught in the hospital and the packet that they're given from the hospital on their way home. And once they get, once they get home, I always sympathize and empathize with patients and families because the home health agency has to be out within 24 to 48 hours. They are measured on timely initiation of care, and rightfully so, but the patient's getting phone calls. 
ones from the home health agency introduced like, hey, we're Justin's home care. We're, we're going to be coming to your home. This is what was ordered. And then the nurse calls and then the therapist calls. And so you're getting a bunch of calls. We try to space them out the best we can to schedule the patient. So that first night that a patient is coming home, if, if you are the patient and you know that you're adequately able to navigate all of that, then great. But if you're a loved one of a patient and you feel like, yeah, mom and dad are never going to answer the phone uh, once they're home from the hospital, make sure somebody's there, pick up the phone and answer because that's the only way we're going to get to the home is if, is if we're able to call, confirm your home and schedule you. Yep. And once you're in, that nurse therapist will come out and evaluate you and then set up a care plan from there in which you're given a frequency of how many visits and how long you're going to be on for home health services. Are there ever like care coordinators that are sort of assisting with this? I've seen uh, some discharge planners and some insurances actually um, will help coordinate some of that care. But sometimes I will say, you know, more times than not in my experience, it's it's really a uh, you're discharged home. And if you're from the hospital and they're not going to be following you as far as like signing off on orders after you're home, there's kind of a drop off. Right. Mm -hmm. It has to shift to who's going to be following that patient, which is the primary care physician. So the care coordination usually is centralized at the home health office, believe it or not, where there is a clinical manager who's connecting the dots from hospital to physician to patient and then to nurse or therapist. Um, on the insurance end, I've seen uh, some of the private insurances sending a nurse to the home that's unaffiliated with the home health company to just assure that you are receiving the care that you're satisfied with the care as a beneficiary to their policy Interesting. and then they'll communicate back to the home health company if there's any dissatisfactions or things like that yeah i was kind of asking so i asked the question then i realized it's, it's really a question on two sides so one and you address both is like one side is from like the healthcare provider coordination standpoint it's like you you could be leaving one health system and going into another um so it's like, is the coordination happening along those lines? But then the other side is also like the patient advocacy um, of like who, as a patient, where are you responsible? What, you know, what do you need to be able to do? If you can't do it, who do you need to have available to be able to do that? So, yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's hard. It's hard as a patient to navigate the the current system. Um, it is. Yeah. They, I mean, I've had family members go through it and more times than not, if a loved one of mine is in home health care, I'm getting three, four calls. Are they supposed to be doing it this way? How do I know when so-and-so is coming out? And so really the way home health companies try to tackle it is, and we, you know, it's a, a cliche line. We say the admitting clinician drives the bus. They become the patient advocate. They make sure that the care plan is set up, that the other disciplines are getting in, uh, but, you know, there's there's only so much one can do as they're managing their own caseload. So the tie in there to make it better is to provide patients with, you know, resources on home health care, which many who have never had it before, they just don't know anything. Mm -hmm. about it. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's really why I wanted to talk to you about this. It's yeah. like this is a this is a whole like sect of the industry where you know I've been operating this industry for the past three years, and I you know I knew it existed, but not in a real capacity. And even then, I wouldn't know how to navigate it if I were going through it. If I had a parent going through it, I wouldn't I wouldn't know the right things to ask. Yeah, yeah, the things that you that you should know up front is what the doctor ordered for you right? What disciplines are coming to your home um, and what each one does. So uh, typically on the welcome calls, when a home health agency accepts a patient, they do what's called a warm welcome call. They'll call the patient, introduce them to the agency. They ordered nursing and physical therapy. The nurse will focus on this and this, that they give it really general specific or sorry, general specific, really general type information. And then anything specific question wise that the patient has, well, when that therapist comes to your home, they'll explain it in more detail because there's two, it's twofold here. And the knowledge base is just, I think it's so small and minimal that, you know, I think patients are missing out on quality care just from their own knowledge base. I've had so many times where they don't know what a PT is, right? What a physical therapist is. So they're like, ah, I don't need it. They don't know what we do. And if they say, I don't need it, Technically, it's their right to choose. And if they're refusing the care, we don't go out. And so it, it's it, the knowledge gap on the on the population side, the patient side is, I think, where we can make a lot of a lot of movement here for outcomes. Yeah. And I think it's probably. I think it's probably important for the people our age are like very our age to like 50, right? The, the, the adult children with aging parents. Um, because a lot of times they end up being the ones who are not necessarily like by law, the decision makers, but, you know, really the advocate within the family. It's usually going to be one of those people. Um, and more times than not, they're going to be thrust into it. There's going to be no ramp up phase, right? Something's going to yeah. happen to mom or dad. And it's yep. like, well, crap, I've got to figure all this out now. And, you know, A, right? The population's going to, the elderly population is going to continue to climb over the next couple decades mm -hmm. and and b and something that's not often thought about is there's a lot of i mean you and i are a prime example we don't live you know where we grew up right whereas in the past a lot of people did and so for me being in pittsburgh mom and dad are six hours away you know thank thankfully i have someone else close by but you know i've dealt with it where you know patient in, that i'm seeing has the only family member that's tied to them is a daughter in california and that's it right and so there's really just a, a physical and a physical gap but then also you know the knowledge gap there that really can prevent a patient from getting the care they need and and i think our generation really needs to to learn get educated on what home health is and can do because you know our parents are going to go through it our grandparents might already be going through it and soon enough we'll be going through it right yeah like at some point we're going to be old too so if you educate yourself now it's going to be beneficial later too yeah especially as more and more care is being pushed to the home we'll probably see a younger population um but there's a there's a phrase that that's uh in home health it's called quicker they say quicker and sicker Patients are getting referred to home care quicker and sicker. They're pushing them out of the hospitals. A lot of times they could be skipping skilled nursing facilities. And so 
even though you might think there's a natural progression that'll take a couple weeks to a few months to figure out everything before home care, you might find that a week later, mom and dad are home and you've got to figure it all out. So, yeah, uh, long hospital stays are not financially beneficial for hospitals. Absolutely not. In and out. Um, where do you see the future kind of of uh, home health? I would love to see it uh, take on more of that preventative type stuff. I am optimistic, though. I think um, data is already starting to drive care um, in a good way. I think there are some companies that use it, you know, in in a way that doesn't really benefit the patient, but those companies are going to get weeded out by you know value based care and all of that. But um, I see it more of a place where you can get a whole array of services, and it's not just tied to a hospitalization or a disease that you already have. I think it could be well beyond like a traditional post hospital type care. Um, an almost like an a la carte type of service where uh, a physician can say, here's all the services that you need and they're all provided in the home. And some of them you can go in for, you know, and, and the patient can have more of a say in it, but we see so much different uh, people trying to tap into that already. You mentioned, you know, Instacart try to get in there. CVS is getting into the home health space. We're seeing more and more from a, a pharmacy end. Uh, I kind of see it as as the primary location of care in the future, prior to going to even your primary care doctor's office. Yeah, I was kind of wondering if it's it ends up becoming one of those things like go get your annual physical, um, have your annual home health visit. Um, if that ends up becoming sort of standard within like you know, you get your three visits a year. It becomes one of those standard things that just comes with. I think it should. A commercial yeah. insurance plan. I think it would be great now that we're going down that road to say, you know, once a year, a physical therapist is going to come to your home and do a fall screen, right? And a home safety assessment. We do see that in certain communities where uh, maybe it's state mandated or state, I guess, ran programs where they do home safety assessments. I actually have some uh, some therapists in Massachusetts that work in that. And I think, you know, if we can get in there and, and just assess you, and we don't have to come for more than that visit and just say, okay, here's the, here's the things we're finding in your home. Here's some modifications to what you're doing day to day to help you prevent. And if we see a need to get in there and prevents, then we can call the doctor and say, hey, your patient's in need of, you know, three or four physical therapy sessions just to prevent, you know, an exacerbation of their condition. So you can see it going that route too. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of possibilities, right? Because, you know, I just think of like the most common disease states like hypertension, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, things like that. Um, especially like prediabetes, it's largely i think it's largely a testing issue it's like 80 percent of pre-diabetics in this country don't know they are pre-diabetic or that don't know that they have pre-diabetes um so if and you know so it's like why is that happening it's like well a lot of people just aren't getting an annual physical um so if you can i don't want to say force it on people but you know removing the barrier of like actually calling and scheduling or going online and actually scheduling that annual physical removing the barrier having things in home i mean even for me i'm super proactive i would much rather have a phlebotomist just show up here 
draw my blood, uh, take my blood, you know, like it'd be easy. It is, it's just easier. I think it could really remove one of those big barriers to getting a lot of people at least on the preventative bandwagon, like start, start getting a look at, start getting a look at these things. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, anything else you want to kind of touch on and where you see kind of the industry over the next 10 years? Uh, I, I think we're going to see more and more, uh, technologies get involved. I know currently any kind of telehealth or, uh, remote patient monitoring is not considered reimbursable under Medicare for home health care, but they're starting in July, they're going to start to have home health agencies put the codes in to their billing so that they can start to track how many are using it, match that up with outcome. Is it producing the outcome that we would consider this to be a reimbursable service? And then from there, I can see that really taking off because I'll tell you, like there are companies that will, that are just eating the cost right now and doing it. And their patients just seem to be doing much better. Their outcomes are better. Um, one of the first questions when I'm on like a high risk call for a subset of patients is, all right, Mr. Smith is, he's high risk. He just got admitted. Did he sign up for our telehealth service or our patient monitoring service? No. Okay. We have to make sure that we kind of push that because we've got to get out there to see him. So I I think that's where we're going to see um a big change and if home is going to become the mainstay of care we have to connect the dots with, with technology it, it's going to help tap into those that might be in very rural parts where it's even hard to get a clinician out mm-hmm. help those patients that just can't get out and they're relying on right now an exacerbation to get them to the hospital to then get the care in their home um, i think if we go the technology base we're going to really see some some movement, and that's where I I definitely see it happening. I don't think it's if, but when. Yeah, definitely. That actually surprised me when we first started talking about this, um, because like I knew the frequency of home health visits was like pretty high, you know, a few times a week possibly. And you said you were like, oh, it'd still be beneficial to see somebody's step count in between those days to make sure they're doing what they say they're doing. Um, the frequency surprised me. I'm used to you're like, oh, a person goes to see their doctor every six months. Yeah, we need some visibility in between then. But even in between a few times a week surprised me. Yeah, typically they'll, uh, well, let's just talk about a high-risk patient, right? They have a lot of comorbidities. They're, they're just coming home from a, a exacerbation of a condition. They try, home health agencies will try to get that patient seen on like a front-loaded type basis where mm-hmm. they'll do a majority of the visits that first week and try to in a perfect world you know separate it out on separate days but you're also subject to doctor's appointments the therapist schedule the nurses schedule sure. new patients coming in the logistical part we talked about before but even with that delivery we do see that some patients that one day that we're not there something happens and they're gone to the hospital and home health agency is on the hook for, you know, preventing that. And right now, the telehealth visits, the remote patient monitoring type telehealth visits, by rule, cannot take place of the physical visit. So if I order as a PT two visits a week, anything I do on that telehealth type end is in addition at the cost of the home health company, so to speak. 
Mm-hmm. Um, from the first week, though, it tends to taper down to, you know, once a week for certain services and things like that. It's a very selfish question. Uh, so one of the features we're thinking about building is like in a way to like alert your healthcare team. Like, do you have any way like, so you were, you use an example of a high risk patient who on an off day went back to the hospital. Yeah. Is there any way for them to reach out to you and say, Hey, I think there's something wrong or like yeah. an easy way. Or is it just like a, did they have to make the phone call? Oh, well, I, I should go back and say that the easy way that I'm saying is the phone call. Meaning like, yeah, we're here, call us. (laughs) But, but there's not that easy, like, uh, I don't want to say 911 call because that's what we're trying to avoid, but that, Hey, there's something happening here. Uh, so what home health companies are doing is they're trying to flip that and they're making the call to the patient on that off day and checking in with them. Is everything going okay? Is there any questions on your medications? You know, and I think what you're probably alluding to is some kind of quick, like, you know, almost like the I'm falling and I can't get up button, but something related to, you know, uh, their condition where they can hit that button and boom, somebody is on with them right away. Yeah. Talking to them about it. Yeah. It would require obviously somebody, an, a clinic, a clinician being present in an office versus out in the field because, uh, you know, they might be in with another patient or something, but at the same time, every office has to have clinical people in the office managing cases. So there's people there. It's just a matter of tying it into their day-to-day. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I talk to a lot of groups, um, usually on the Medicare Advantage side of things. And they're like, we, like we can optimize revenue, but we just can't, we can't control costs. It's so hard. And one of their biggest costs is like people going to the hospital for things that they don't need to go to the hospital for. Yeah. They're like- Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just gonna say it's like a, it's a massive cost when if they had just sort of alerted their primary, their primary could be like, oh, that's not a no, no, that's not a hospital thing. That's a that's a just come in and see me right now, um, or urgent care or something. Right, the just being able to better triage uh, the appropriate use of healthcare facilities when a lot of people just go, well, something's wrong, hospital. Yeah, and and this ties into and I can. Uh, I'll spare you, but I can go on a tangent about this. Every single company, especially if you're not staying in that network, if you come to home care, the doctor can't just click a button and pull up all the notes to kind of review and say, actually, this one, you should go to the hospital or you can come to my office, you know, not having any background on the patient. And so there's not a universal type electronic medical records in most cases where it can just be fluid. You know, where somebody can pop in from the hospital and look at how their patient's doing in home care. They have to request that information. And I think that could, you know, that time that it takes to dig, if a patient calls and says, this is going on, they can see kind of a timeline and the story of how their patient's been doing since they were sent home and determine what's best for them from there. Now, granted, you know, now that that responsibility is on the home health company, if the patient calls in to know that timeline and express that upstream to the referring physician, but there's, there's a simpler way for sure. It's just how we get there. Yeah. It's all very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you think AI is going to make a, like, it's impossible not to talk about AI now. It's just, it's, I think it's going to change things the way the internet changed things, right? Tons of jobs are going to go away whole new industries will pop up, but like, where, where do you see AI sort of integrating itself into maybe healthcare? If you want to talk about it that broadly or specifically within, within home health. 
Yeah, I, I see AI being a part of it. Um, and, and I think all of us are kind of having that shock effect right now because at first I was like, oh, this is cool. I can open up chat, you know, uh, chat bot or whatever it's called and mm-hmm. type in, you know, hey, tell me a story about this and boom, the story's up there or, you know, and boom, it's done. But now there's that scared effect. I was just watching the news yesterday where like the CEO of one of the AI companies is like begging the government to regulate it because of how it can spiral out of control. But I think once we get to that point where we, you know, kind of like the internet, where we know what it is and what its capabilities are, I think providers could use it as a, uh, you know, they should embrace it. They should use it as some kind of assistant, some kind of performance enhancing uh, drug, so to speak, as as a clinician, because, and I'll, I'll share the example that I share with you in my notes. Uh, I was at a conference in New Hampshire. It was a home health conference, and that was the first topic. Boom, right in your face, AI, remote patient monitoring, all that. And they were talking about embracing artificial intelligence because it's coming. It's not going to stay away from healthcare. There's not a single clinician that that will say, oh, this is great. It's going to get my hands off of patients. We want to have our hands on patients. That's why we got into it. But sure. for the example uh, that I that they went over, there was a uh, provider, a physician, dermatologist, and, a, uh, and the AI software. And they assessed the same group of patients for melanoma. The provider, the physician, caught more melanoma than the AI. It was 95% caught by provider and 90-ish percent caught by the artificial intelligence. But when you combine the two, they caught 98%. And so my the, the whole vibe of it was, wouldn't that be great to have that second set of eyes and help that extra 3% of people? And that's where I can kind of see AI going just in healthcare in general on uh, being able to, um, you know, enhance the ability of the provider to catch things. You know, how many times do we even say like, or do you hear like, oh, my physician didn't catch this on the MRI or didn't catch this on the x-ray. I was sent home once, you know, uh, being told my leg wasn't broken. And that was sophomore year of high school uh, when I broke my leg in soccer. Yeah. And I was sent home. It's not broken. And the next day I couldn't get off the couch and they said, oh yeah, there is a crack in that bone. Um, so I can see it kind of enhancing things um, on a physical therapy. And it's interesting because, and maybe it's a little bit of my PT ego and not wanting to embrace it just yet. Although I'm fully ready to, I, I don't see how they could have that hand, they, AI could have that hands-on kind of touch that we do. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a, it's a great way to offer up other avenues of providing care for the patient because not every patient's going to go down that same protocol and get the same result. So maybe like almost like a, you know, if this, then that type of thing with AI for a clinician. And then that just becomes ingrained in our brain as a PT. Now we're enhancing our ability and AI just continues to be uh, guiding you know, when we're in those tough situations where currently we might say patients making no progress, we need to discharge because insurance won't cover any more visits if there's no progress. Maybe there's something in some kind of research deep down that we've never seen that AI can pull up like that and boom, hey, have you thought of this? Yeah, I mean, the 
all like the clinical applications, I think they're all really interesting. And like every provider is going to have their own idea of like where, where it can help, where it might be dangerous, things like that. Um, I, I think because like the administrative side of the industry is so, so heavy. I, I think AI can like help replicate or like increase the leverage on a lot of these companies where like you're already talking about how the first day home for somebody who's like uh, going to be getting home healthcare can be overwhelming with the amount of phone calls you can expect and things like that. Um, one of the interesting things is it looks super creepy right now, but is like uh, AI avatars and being able to do like voiceovers. They look they look like mannequins right now, but the fact that it's there already, um, a lot of like staffing companies are using these for trainings uh, because instead of a person having to record a whole training video, you can just type it in, the AI does it. And then if you need to change anything, it's not paying the actor again, it's not paying the videographer again, you just change the text. And so it's like, it's on things like that, it's like how much more leverage can a company have for things that would normally require a person to do? And like how many, how many more additional resources can a company create at like $80 a month for this type of software? I don't know. I think there's a lot of interesting things around that. Yeah. And also on the, you know, uh, we could talk about like the scheduling piece with therapy. You asked before, like, how do we logistically figure that out? Like, I feel AI could really play a huge piece in that and help therapists make schedules, maybe even disperse communication out to patients, which avoids a therapist calling every single patient. It kind of, you know, it, it can go on forever. I do want to talk about one thing on the opposite end where we're seeing it already infiltrate the space is insurances using AI for mm. reviews of uh, claims. And uh, I forget where the article was from, but it was uh, in relation to skilled nursing facilities having being overburdened with um, what are called, you know, additional documentation requests because there are these charts are leaning towards denial and they're having AI scam or scam skim through a million more charts than a single person can, right? Yeah. In a short period of time. And so what's happening is, you know, this huge rush to to get this all taken care of and insurance is putting more pressure on that end. In one way, I like it because maybe we're going to catch some providers that are fraudulently billing and things like that quicker. But on other ends, I could see how it's currently overburdening, you know, humans. <laughs> so, sure. So it has to be a middle ground because I, I see a place for it. Like, I, it would be so great to say because Medicare claims can get so backed up. Like, my, the AI can review a thousand charts in, you know, 10 minutes for you get those out and, you know, and maybe that's a pipe dream even for AI, but uh, those charts can be reviewed, filled, and maybe it could be on the home health agencies and like, you know, making sure that everything's in place to send a claim out to Medicare. Maybe the reviewing happens on the front end with AI mm -hmm. and that can really assist. So, so every time I hear something negative about AI in relation to healthcare, there is a positive twist to it if they can just make it work in just a little different of a direction. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a tool, right? Uh, hopefully it's a tool that we can end up controlling in the long run, but uh, it, it's a tool and it's just going to be dictated by how, how people want to manipulate that tool. Yep. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of really interesting possibilities around it though. Yeah. Uh, I got a few more questions if you've got a, uh, if you've still got time. I've got time. Cool. Um, 
anything you want to share, like you've changed your mind about, I think it's always interesting to see how people's mindsets sort of change and shift over the years. Yeah. I, I, um, for one preventative care, I just, like, if I'm being honest, like up until, you know, I started practicing, I I really, especially practicing in home health, I, I really didn't think of preventative care as like, you know, that's where we need to go. So my mind has shifted a lot in that regard that we're wasting a lot of money and resources just continuing to fix the problems as opposed to preventing them from happening. And it just makes sense, right? Like it is so much cheaper to do those one or two wellness checks, you know, prior to anything happening versus the eight plus visits that are going to happen after you're, you've already, you know, been in the hospital and ran up your hospital bill as well. So I think that's one thing that I've kind of, uh, my mind has shifted drastically on and it ties into a couple other things, right? Like, um, I think the only way that preventative care gets to be successful is if patients are educated in, you know, their in preventive, but also that they care about, about this stuff, because I think, you know, and maybe it's a little, a little triggering, but I think we've normalized so many negative things or we're trying to push so many negative healthy or health related things as just, let's just embrace it. Let's just accept it. And what's going to happen is all these 10, 15 years down the road that we've normalized are now going to put a huge burden, so to speak, on the healthcare system. And so I think the population needs to buy in, right? Like, and say, okay, let's not do this. We need to start doing that. And um, I think clinicians can be the driver in that. I think you know, it doesn't have to be your primary care physician. It can be your physical therapist. It can be your nurse or whoever's making that home health visit. Um, so that's that's kind of a subset to the prevention. On the other end, I think my mind is totally shifted in understanding the why on the financial aspects of healthcare and understanding, and this is more ever since I've taken on management, right? Like, hey, whether we like it or not, currently healthcare is a business and companies are being, you know, measuring themselves not only on their outcomes, but on their margins. And and same with insurances. And so my mind has kind of shifted, you know, into understanding, right? And and tying it into our population, right? There are people who just don't want to be cared for. And they're in and out of hospital, in and out of home care. They're accepting the care because to them it's covered by their insurance. But, you know, more times than not, they're going to do everything you ask them in the session and they might not do anything after that. And then boom, they're discharged, they're back in the hospital or they refuse further care, they're back in the hospital. And so I've grown an appreciation for understanding that through management and kind of, uh, you know, coming to grips with not everybody is fixable or wants to be fixed. And if we can get more of that population buy-in again, you know, like I was saying before, then perhaps we see, you know, better outcomes, better care, and a less cost to the healthcare system just by the sheer fact of people knowing what the repercussions of their actions could be. Yeah, totally. Have you ever heard the um, the saying about 
people who work in like retail sales of like 10% of people are never going to buy, 10% are guaranteed to buy when they walk in and 80% can be sold in the middle. Yep. So it's probably similar to that, right? And you're anyone working within healthcare, there's going to be like a, so some, one of the cognitive biases of like, you just happen to see these people. So you're probably seeing that 10% who just doesn't want to be cared for more often, just by the nature of the fact that they're going to be running through the system more frequently. And then you've got your health freaks on the other end of the spectrum who are, you know, monitoring and measuring everything they put in their body. And and that's fine, but I don't think that's necessary for a majority of people. But I do think it's that middle population that can be swayed back and forth. And like you said, there is, there's been a lot of normalization and there's something to be said for the fact that I guess reducing stress around stigmas matters. How do we quantify that? I have no idea. Um, but yeah, there's, uh, it, it's hard to make the argument that the United States is a healthy country right now. Um, and I, I don't think our system can bear the financial burden of that in the future. Um, like if you just look at diabetes, there's like 30 million people with type two diabetes or 30 million people with diabetes in the U S and that accounts for roughly $400 billion a year. Um, then there's 90 million people who are pre-diabetes. So we're, we're barely scratching the burden of just, just the diabetic population at this point. Um, so yeah, I think it's, I think it's not, it's not something we can financially continue to do, um, as a country, but I, like you said, I think education, I think leveraging the amount of healthcare providers, right? Healthcare industry is the biggest industry by revenue and by labor as well. So there are a ton of resources. It's not just, like you said, it's not just your primary. Um, And I think sort of, I I guess creating like a flatter hierarchy where not everything needs to run through your primary. Um, But I think if, if we can kind of shift people more towards the individual being at the center of the healthcare system and they can sort of bring in the healthcare providers that they trust and they want to work with. Um, that's going to be a much better system than just kind of shoving people into the existing, the existing cog wheels of the system. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, if people want to learn more about the stuff, is there, do you have any resources or are there good places that people can go to, to learn more about this? Yeah. So for general home health information, I think, uh, Two avenues. One, Medicare's site gives a lot of info on just general home care, but also uh, what's called home health compare. I was talking before about how um, patients are, you know, the discharge process and they're given a list. They might not have ever heard of these home health companies, right? And they're just given agency and star rating. Well, this website, it's just Google Medicare home health compare. And um, it will pull up outcomes and you can compare. You can click on the agencies that have been provided to you from the hospital and it'll run a side by side of their outcomes. So maybe you have three agencies who are four stars, but you just had knee a knee replacement and your primary goal is to get better at walking and moving around, right? Well, it will tell you out of those agencies who is the best with that particular outcome. Um, so Medicare, again, it's called Medicare home care compare. Um, and then also, uh, and maybe a little plug for my current company, health pro heritage. Uh, we are a, and we expand beyond the home health, uh, space. We're in every, every setting as a rehab company, um, and very innovative. And so, uh, in, invest a lot of time and resources into looking at innovative ways to deliver care 
as a partner with our home health companies, the facilities that we're in, et cetera. And on, if you were to Google Health Pro Heritage, you can uh, click on, there's numerous blogs and data where we're providing all the ins and outs of home health care, whether it's the changes that are coming up in the upcoming year or you know specific data, things like that. You can find it all on, on our website there. And our company is, is on the forefront of innovation. We are the largest uh, rehab specific company um, in the country. Uh, especially on the home care side, so uh, we have a lot of a lot of information that we roll out pretty frequently. Yeah, that's great. I'll definitely link to both of those in the show notes and uh, the description. Um, if you couldn't be doing what you're doing now, where else could you see yourself career wise? What you know, else? This, what else are you drawn to? This question, when it, when I was looking over my notes, was the toughest uh, <laughs> for me to to answer because I actually there was two routes, right? And I always had the exercise physiology route in my brain, but growing up fascinated with animals. So initially, you know, uh, my mind was going to when I was a freshman and I was going to go look at marine biology, things like that. But growing up, I was like fascinated with uh, Jane Goodall, uh, gorillas, evolution, all of that stuff, like fourth grade talking evolution with my with my parents, uh, you know. Um, and uh, I would definitely, could definitely see myself still in that arena if I wasn't mm-hmm. doing PT, going out there researching uh, animals, to keep it simple. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Kind of gathering how we come to be where we're at today and, and why we are the way we are, I guess is a good way to put it. It's a fascinating yeah. story to explore, right? Yeah, yeah. And, I, I you know, so much is untapped there. And uh you know, it, hey, who knows? Maybe there's a tie into healthcare somewhere along the lines with that too, right? How we're how we uh, function as human beings. But mm-hmm. uh, the other avenue was uh, soccer coach. And just a short story here: I, you know, maybe stupidly put all my eggs in one basket for PT school. Applied to one school, the school I was at, that had guaranteed seats, and so there were only three spaces open. They just opened that year to a national application system. So. Really took a risk uh, and did not apply elsewhere. Luckily, got in. But at the time, I actually was exploring uh, and had an opportunity to do grad assistant with, with soccer to be a coach, mm. and uh, and not at my university I was at, but at another one. And so, uh, always, always loved playing. Always, I still do. Uh, um, but soccer coach would be the other avenue I'd go. I could see both of those for you. Yeah. <laughs> If, uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how should they reach out? Yeah, LinkedIn is is uh, probably the the best um, way to find me. It, Justin Frick. Uh, if you have to search by a location, I'm out of out of Pittsburgh uh, right now. I've I've just moved here recently. I'm on that site. I have it up on my other screen right now, right next to me. I have it up all the time. Always collaborate with people on there, messaging back and forth. I hop on many calls with people who just want to pick my brain, things like that. So if there's one central place to find me, that's it. And then, uh, you know, we can schedule time to talk or you can just send messages right on there. Great. Yeah, I'll definitely link that as well. Um, Anything you want to close out with? We covered a lot. Uh, I'm sure I could talk to you for another few hours about this stuff, but just try to wrap it up there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, And I'll, I'll just tie it all back into, you know, there's a lot of, 
discussions for, you know, people that are listening, right? That we've talked about things that might paint a picture of a little bit negative, but hope for the future. But there is a lot of positive right now in the care that's being provided. It's just navigating the system that we're in. So it's got to be said, reiterated that, you know, all of the people who will ever provide care to you, they're operating for a business right now because healthcare is a business and all the way up through the government, right? The spend on healthcare is climbing and they're looking for ways to reduce that cost. So whether we agree with it, don't agree with it, that's neither here or there. That's the system that we're in, but we can always advocate for change. And I think, you know, uh, platforms like this help educate people in what's going on in the world, in the industry, in this country. And so continue to educate yourself. And as we continue to see this evolve, whether it's, you know, regulatory or uh, reimbursement models, we have to adapt to that and we have to figure out ways to make it work. Like I said before, it seemed like they every year they just move the needle a little bit and then see how everybody behaves and reacts. And I think we're getting going to get to a place where uh, there's going to be that make or break moment for the country, for the industry of healthcare. And so the biggest missing piece is that knowledge gap by the population. And so find ways to educate yourselves on not just how do I prevent this disease, but you know, if something were to happen, what, what are my options? Um, and then I'll leave it with, you know, just in relation to our, our most recent, you know, couple of questions regarding AI, like, technology is going to help providers drive best care. Uh, those, you know, if you're a provider listening to this, my advice would be get to know it, get to embrace it, because if you don't, you're going to get left in the dust. It's just, it's coming and you're going to have to do it. So other than that, that's all I got. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, I mean, very from a very selfish standpoint, this is probably uh, this has probably been one of the most interesting one of these that I've done, just because I knew so little about the space going into it. So a lot of these were like very organic and just like self serving questions of like, how do I learn more about this? Um, but this has been really fun. I, hopefully, it's been very helpful for anyone else listening as well. Um, just on the education piece, hopefully, understanding some of your patient rights, understanding exactly what that system is going to look like if you find yourself or a loved one kind of having to navigate home health and then also understanding the the importance of prevention and also just deploying a little empathy for understanding what your healthcare healthcare providers are kind of going through in the industry as well. Um, everyone gets into this industry because they want to help people. Um, um, so it's, it's understanding that they, that's how they get into it. And we're just operating, like you said, in, in the, in, in the industry and in the best way that we can within the current, within the current constraints. But Justin, this has been really fun for me. Um, I think I mentioned this to you on, a, on an initial call. This is a fun opportunity for me because I get to ask you lots of questions that would probably seem somewhat inappropriate at, I don't know, a bachelor party, for example. But uh, <laughs> no, so this has been really fun for me and I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. This was great. All right, man. Thanks. Yeah. Bye. Bye.